the nation station Manx Radio Lem I, good day and welcome to this week's episode of Perspective. I'm Dolan Mercer. This week we're taking a look back on a crucial oral evidence session which took place on Monday. If we rewind back to November last year, the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee, a standing committee of Tinwald, committed to undertake an inquiry into the topic of suicide. The move came as part of its report on mental health here. The committee set out to look at the adequacy of preventative measures, the response of public services following instances of suicide, the role and functioning of the coroner of inquests, and the support available for those affected by suicide. This Monday, the 2nd of September, the panel of David Cretney, MLC, and MHK's Martin Perkins and Julie Edge heard in public from the Minister of Health and Social Care, David Ashford, and Dr Henrietta Hewitt, who is Director of Public Health. We'll have a listen to what they had to say shortly. But first, let's revisit what's already been said on the topic this year. In January, the then Director of Community Care gave Manx Radio her thoughts. Uh, Now, as you may have heard in the news, uh, tackling the number of suicides on the Isle of Man, it's a complex issue and one which needs a national strategy. That's from the... uh, Angela Murray, the Director of Community Care for the Department of Health and Social Care. It follows figures obtained last August when 10 suicides were reported in 28 up until that point, which was already more than double that of the previous year. It also coincides with the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee uh, conducting an inquiry into the topic of suicide. It's gathering evidence from across the island from those who've been affected by it. I spoke to Ms Murray about what they're doing to address the problem until we actually um, have all the detail and and this is this is something which we really need to be clear about the issue of only 50 percent of people who actually commit suicide on average have been in touch with their mental health services however they're often in touch with other services and they're most definitely in touch with their communities, you know, their neighbours, the shopkeepers, everybody. And a strategy for the management of suicide is a national thing. It isn't the mental health services. We have a significant part to play in it, but we need a national strategy. So it's very difficult unless, you know, we actually have a full audit on these 10 cases to sit here and say well it's actually because of this or it's because of that there are so many socioeconomic factors that can influence somebody but I I do think we need obviously to improve access into our services and perhaps do it in a different way I'm not saying we don't do without crisis mental health People are not necessarily, if they end up committing suicide, earlier on, they're not necessarily in crisis. They need to access us in a different way so they don't reach crisis and make a decision to take their own life. And that's where the earlier tiers of service can significantly uh, influence the figures. But it is a nation (laughs) that has to deal with because there are there are so many other services involved. We talk about the community and the socio-economic impact mm. as well. Are we talking a much broader cultural shift mm. needed? 
Yeah, that's that again. There's an awful lot of research uh, on the issue. So yes, that needs to be done on the island. Again, it, it, the tendency isn't there when when something is severe, if you like, as suicide. People look at the mental health services and say, "What are you doing about it?" But it needs a much much broader approach. And yes, I think when we are looking at times of austerity, and you know, we should have a strategy that actually looks at how we deal with those things as a nation. That was the then Director of Community Care, Angela Murray, speaking to Alex Watton in January this year. Incidentally, the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee will hear from Mrs Murray tomorrow, who's now the Interim Chief Executive Officer of the Department of Health and Social Care, from half past three. That's being held in the Legislative Council Chamber and members of the public are welcome to attend. The panel also held three public evidence sessions in March. On the 8th, it heard from Mr John Kermode of Psychology.im and Ms Jill Porter, branch director of the Isle of Man Samaritans. On the 18th, it heard from representatives of Crews Bereavement Care, Gillian Skinner and Joni Farragher, Julie Bibby of Government Staff Welfare and Dee Belden of the Isle of Man Health and Care Association. Then on the 22nd of March, it heard from Bill Henderson, MLC. For background, you can listen back to those evidence sessions in full on the Tinwald Listen Again service. But let's look back at an extract of the final sitting, though. Mr Henderson was speaking in a professional capacity as someone with a career in psychiatric services, as he explained to the panel. Uh, You ask what qualifies me to give any evidence, and as I've submitted in my document to you. I have 20 years or nearly 20 years experience working in the Isle of Man Psychiatric Services as a registered mental nurse and several of those years prior to my leaving as the uh, psychiatric hospital night manager. Over that period of time I have had um, considerable training in recognising, shall we say, uh, depressive episodes, people in distress, people suffering from uh, stress and indicators that would possibly mean that somebody was feeling suicidal or intending on committing suicide. And indeed my 20 years hence working in Tinwald as a member of Tinwald in continual contact with constituents and assisting in personal matters and so on and indeed continual contact with my colleagues or former colleagues in the mental health service on and off over the years has given me some insight I don't claim to be an expert and I want that on record but certainly it gives me enough experiential learning to be able to produce the paper I did and certainly answer any questions you might wish to put to me. So excuse us for taking advantage of your experience. It's just interesting to have that bit of background before we... It sets the scene, doesn't it? I think so. I think so. That's hospital inpatient, of course, gentlemen, um, as was up to 1998 upon my departure of Balamona. I would say we tried our very best there and produced a family atmosphere that was... um, we aimed for... Sadly neglected though, and it was sadly underfunded by government at that time. And there was a uh, Professor Symes came here and assessed the place in the late 90s before I left. 
and he really did condemn the issue of underfunding and how we saw some of the wards um, still covered in 50s lino and things like that, you know, 1960s chairs and lounges and no hoists in areas for right. care of the elderly and so on. Mm. So in one way, it, it was very antiquated and not up to scratch, which immensely frustrated the staff because we could see how nobles were being funded, how general health was being funded, how things are moving elsewhere. Yet we were taking the hit for what can only be described as um, government penny pinching at, at the day to try and balance other budgets elsewhere and cover other deficiencies. What factors do you think might commonly cause a person to begin thinking of taking their own life? That's a huge question, Chairman. And the range of issues that could cause that to occur are immense, but there are some main themes. Chronic pain, um, an illness which is such as cancer, uh, which determines the um, person's uh, lifespan. Um, then we have partnership crisis, a split up of a partnership uh, that can cause, have devastating consequences. It could be a short term relationship or a long term relationship. I recall one description from a police officer who attended a domestic disturbance in Pulrose and uh, following a huge um, matrimonial row uh, and possible split up, the male partner just grabbed a shotgun in the house and went to the rear of the house and just blew his brains out on the, on the spur of a moment. The police had to attend that and <laughs> the obvious uh, consequential duties involved. <laughs> Even the most minor things we'd see as minor, that's our personal view. To somebody else's personal view, who's been bullied or victimised because they didn't do well at a certain physical activity in school or a certain activity outside, those remarks can reverberate through that person's mind for a long time and have a major effect and that has been the causative factor in uh, many suicide cases too. What, what others think of me, I'm a failure. Um, you also have isolationism, somebody who's lonely, unable to make friends, that's been seen as a major cause, or I know it to be a major cause. Um, social media is coming to the forefront now as a major causative factor. Didn't exist when I was in the psychiatric services as such, although I was well acquainted with um, what the rumour machine, if I can put it like that, of a person's social circle and the effect that that could have on a person. Mm. But we, I've supplied evidence where it's quite obvious that certainly in one case, a young woman um, <coughs> she killed herself as a result of um, continual bombardment of negative commentaries on social media mm. through our social circles. Social media seems to, in some cases I've observed, and through a lot of constituency work, from personal experience, it holds huge sway on that person's thinking, 
how they function and indeed how they go on about their daily lives and they to the point where every few minutes the phone's been checked to see what's been said next or should I comment on that and I've seen it to the extent in some households where comments have escalated or been misread to the point where the police have been involved and a whole social network group has become upset or outraged and the poor person in the middle of it might be innocent but the huge effect that's had on them it's quite dramatic <laughs> unbelievable do you think that's because it's the isle of man factor that's in that that it wouldn't perhaps happen in the uk well you could be forgiven for saying that mr perkins but generally speaking this seems to be happening elsewhere too mm. you, you've got small communities in the uk uh, outside the city the main sort of um, urban areas and we see the same reports in the UK press as well, where um, ongoing commentaries and bullying has been a factor in, in somebody taking their own lives as well. I have looked at Isle of Man factors here, as you probably noticed in, in my paper, and I can't discover from trawling through the evidence myself any highlighted Isle of Man factor as <coughs> such that would be causing people to take their own lives but I've identified areas that might not help if somebody's feeling depressed and I specifically asked the committee to look at the um, incidences of alcohol abuse here, drug abuse and drug and alcohol dependency because people who move into that area are also moving into high risk suicide, uh, potentially suicidal uh, risk. It's always been said here about the amount of um, people who drink and take drugs mm. and social um, attitudes and what mm. have you. Uh, and the other factor is isolation here or loneliness by virtue of being an island and the fact that it's very difficult for many people. You can't just hop off if you're living across. You can drive from one town to the next or there's a bus service or train to take you. Here, if you want to visit family, loved ones, friends, it becomes incredibly difficult, especially if you're on the low income scale of the earnings, whereby, yeah, it's cheap to get a boat trip across and back comparatively, but to somebody on low, um, low wages, it's not that cheap, plus the time involved and all the rest of it with regards to a ferry journey. Um, or a family holiday, a break away from the place, from seeing the same old faces work. You have to add on almost another holiday and expenses then to get to the UK, a possible overnight stay somewhere to catch a flight to take you. And it only might be New Yorker or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Not, a, not a posh holiday, but the positive effect a break away can give some people is quite immense. And if you can't do that and you feel trapped here or you're feeling lonely and you can't directly see uh, family or friends and I, I think that does have an effect. As I say, this is a secondary point as opposed to main causative factors of uh, suicide. But I've identified those because they will become exacerbated if you are feeling uh, depressed or down or stressed over any particular issue. One of the things you have referred to in your commentary and I've we found it very interesting was in relation to the number of people at the time who were actually engaged with the mental health services 
I think what you said was it would be wrong to uh, something and I'm using my words rather than your words it would be wrong to assume that everybody who took their own life was engaged at that time with the mental health well, services yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean when we look back on things and certainly the Fee and Hex report for instance it's 50% of people who have taken their own lives have been involved roughly mm. with the mental health service which I think gives us a whole new um, level of observation to this really because usually when somebody uh, commits suicide there's always a finger of blame it's always you know what, mm. who did what wrong mental <laughs> health service is always planted firmly in the middle of it yeah. yet 50 percent or so of cases of people taking their own lives they've had no contact with the mental health service which is very interesting which drives my point then that really suicide is a island-wide community issue that should be picked up in the public health arena supported by agencies such as mental health police and uh, whatever how do you think we can um improve that regarding the people that don't present with mental health issues uh, how can we find those people out that's a hugely difficult question mm, i know <laughs> monstrous because i'm not saying it's impossible but the likes of um, males who commit suicide, and it's well known and demonstrated, um, they tend not to talk about the feelings. It's an inherent, almost genetic thing, if you like. So it's a difficult barrier to overcome, but I think, uh, as I've laid out in my paper, that there's plenty we could do to make it as where, make it, make help obvious where and as much as we can. And we can do that with notices, little bulletins, social media. Use although I've just um, passed negative comment on social media. I can see the good side of it as well, where we can get messages out there, such as the American psychiatric services do, and the self-help for social media users that they offer. However, it has been highlighted to me, it's not my point, but I've put it in the paper, such as advocates who are managing separation and divorce cases, they could make it tactfully known if you feel stressed or pressurised with this, look, here, here's some people that are great to talk to, you know, Samaritans or our own mental health. Some way of highlighting it, post offices are another area, even shops or community centres, there's a lot of highlighting we could do so that people know there is help available if someone's feeling stressed or overwhelmed with a situation, not possibly moved into feeling suicidal, but for those people too, but even before it gets there. That was Bill Henderson, MLC, giving evidence to the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee in March on the topic of suicide on the Isle of Man. After the break, we'll listen in to the committee's latest hearing. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Faster Mai, welcome back to Perspective on Manx Radio. If you're just joining us, we're taking a look at a series of public meetings on what might always remain a taboo topic. In November, the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee, a standing committee of Tinwald, committed to undertake an inquiry into the topic of suicide here. And on Monday, the panel of David Cretney, MLC, and MHK's Martin Perkins and Julie Edge heard in public from the Minister of Health and Social Care, David Ashford, and Dr Henrietta Hewitt, who is the Director of Public Health. 
Let's listen to what they had to say. The remit of the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee is to scrutinise the established but not, not emergent policies as deemed necessary by the Committee of the Department of Health and Social Care, Department of Education, Sport and Culture and the Department of Home Affairs. Our report on mental health was laid before Timbald in November 2018 and debated in January 2019. In that report, we said that we would undertake a further inquiry into suicide. This inquiry has been running since November 2018 and we're very grateful to everyone who's provided written and oral evidence so far. And we also met some people in private. Today, we welcome representatives of the Department of Health and Social Care Welcome and thank you for your written evidence. For the record, please, could you each state your name, a job title, and how long you've been in that role? Yes, certainly David Ashford, MHK, Minister for Health and Social Care, and I've been in the role since January last year. I'm Dr Henrietta Hewitt, Director of Public Health, and I've been in the role since March 2015. Good. Thank you very much. So thank you for the figures that you've sent us. From our point of view, there are two big questions. Is suicide cre increasing and how does the Isle of Man compare to other jurisdictions? So if you'd like to give us your views on that. Uh, we have, over the last four, four years since I've been in post, we have moved in the Directorate of Public Health to routinely analysing statistics around a range of public health outcomes. This was not done before I came into post, so um, we've been playing catch-up compared to other jurisdictions, shall we say. Um, but certainly suicide is a key public health outcome indicator, so we have been analysing that and we have been able to do it retrospectively for as far back as we have a um, body of death certificate data. Uh, the methodology we use is to exactly replicate what is used by the Office of National Statistics across. So it is based on death certification where the cause of death was either suicide or undetermined cause. Um, so that gives the, the widest interpretation there and allows for the fact that sometimes it is difficult to determine whether a death was with deliberate intent or not. Mm. Um, so looking at all of that data and bearing in mind that we have a very small population, which means that purely by chance we will get a saw-toothed graph over years. It looks as if we've got peaks, troughs, peaks, troughs, but that's simply artefact of small numbers and the fact that with small numbers, a difference of maybe one or two appears to be a big difference, but statistically is not significant. So we use, again, a standard statistical methodology to compare our data with that of England, and that involves calculating a confidence interval, which allows us to say our actual figure for, and we do it on a three-year average to balance out those spikes. Um, so the confidence interval gives you a range of where your figure could have been highest and lowest compared to a much bigger population. And when we do that, we find that actually over the years that we've been doing this, our numbers are pretty steady on a three-year rolling average, and we are in line with England. We're not better than England, we're not worse than England. Um, so that doesn't mean this isn't a problem. Um, it means that we very definitely should have a strategy and action plans to deal with it, which we haven't had. Um, and 
that that's really the position where we are. The numbers have fallen a bit since the late 90s and some of the causes uh, or methods of suicide have changed. The notable one being a fall in poisonings and substances and the driver for that is really the change in the late 90s to restrict the sale of paracetamol which has made it very much more difficult to people access for people to access that as a means of either self-harm or, or suicide. Was there any notable increase with the advent of social media? I beg your pardon? Was there any notable increase with the advent no. of social media? No. Social media, and there have been some big reviews done of it, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, potentially trolling, nasty behaviour, cyberbullying could be a risk factor for tipping somebody into doing something and you'll be aware of some of the very high profile cases of you know teenage girls I think largely across where it has been said to be a factor but on the other hand it can actually be protective because it enables people to access a whole host of anonymous advice um, about um, mental distress um, and in fact the World Health Organization included social media in their big systematic review of interventions around suicide prevention and their conclusion was actually you know that there is this balance between the potential negatives and the potential positives thank you you explained that from your professional point of view uh, you do a th over a three-year average uh, and uh, as such that there may be spikes do you think given that we're a small island uh, and we lots of people know each other and which is a good thing i think we have a good community that 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 there's sometimes more of an impact because because of that very thing yes and i think when when we use terminology we have to be careful what we mean by it so when i say a spike um i'm really meaning an artifact of a small number now there's another aspect to that which is you can get clusters and there's a very clear definition that is used by WHO, it's used by Public Health England, etc., about a cluster being, and this applies to communicable disease or any other thing, that whereas there is a possibility yeah. that behaviours transmit almost like a virus, shall we say. Mm. And that can be a feature with suicide. So if you get a spike, mm. you need to test it to see, is it just random or is it a cluster? And to be defined as a cluster, you need three or more cases that are clearly related in space and time. And you can show that there was a connection between people. Right. Um, and we haven't found any clusters in the data um, that we've been able to analyze. Thank you. In your figures, you use the definition, you've already referred briefly to this, but in your figures, you use the definition deaths by suicide and undetermined intent. Could you please explain how this differs from the definition used in previous studies based on inquest findings? Um, I think there are a number of key points. The in-depth studies based on inquest findings are not something we can replicate regularly, whereas the methodology we now use means it's a standard indicator that gets updated every year. So I think it's much stronger in that respect. I think the problem with the studies that have been done in the past is the methodologies, methodologies have differed depending on the, you know, the preferences and the backgrounds of the people right. who did them. And, and that's probably not really very helpful. Can I, can I ask a couple of questions on that? So, um, 
When you said that the collection of data that you are doing now didn't happen before you were in post, yeah. came into post four years ago, but I think you said something about going back. So have you gone, you, you were able to go back as far as there were yes. death certificates. So how far <laughs> back have you gone? There's another interesting little story behind that. I mean, you know, why were we not doing this? I, I, I was horrified when I came in to post and found that none of this was being done. Why have we been, or how have we been able to go back, obviously much further than I've been in post? The reason is death obviously continues or, or has always been certified. You have to get a death certificate and the methodology for that has always been in place, going back really to 1837 and the General Registrations Acts. Um, but nobody was doing anything with that data. So we, when I started developing the intelligence function in the directorate, we actually set up a contract with the Office of National Statistics to receive from the registrar here the raw death data, the stuff that is written on the certificates, send it off to ONS for them to classify and process exactly as happens to deaths across. So they've been able to do that going back, I think we've got to 2006. One of the problems with um, suicide is sometimes the GPs, in order to save the family, would not put down the, the primary reason. Um, have you taken that into account? Well, I think that is very difficult to do now because of the rules for reporting a death to a coroner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if somebody has hanged themselves, um, you can't cover that up anymore. Now, certainly, historically, there was a very well-known feature in medical jurisprudence, um, erotic asphyxiation, which often led to accidental death by hanging, and often the circumstances in which the person were found would be well, they would often be dressed up. There would be things associated with the scene which were obviously going to be very distressing to families, etc., if it came out. And so there is very strong documentation that very often that was modified, shall we say. You still couldn't get away from the fact that the person had died as a result of asphyxiation from a ligature, but you could maybe change their clothes, change the scene. Um, it shouldn't have happened, um, but it did, and is well documented as, as having done so. I don't think we would expect to find that now. Um, and as I say, most of the other causes of death that are likely to be related to suicide would be instantly referable to the coroner, so there wouldn't really be scope for medical practitioners, however well-intentioned, to try and give an alternative cause of death. So somebody that's suffering from intense pain and committed suicide would be different to somebody with a mental problem? That would be clearly... In what respect? Uh, well, suffering from depression, which drove them to suicide, or, and somebody who uh, was suffering from probably terminal pain decided to end it. So would that come out in the statistics? Um, it would come out in the coroner's reports. Yep. We probably wouldn't see it in the first cut of the statistic, but the routine stats are very much intended to be what we might call a high-level diagnostic tool. So if it's waving a red flag at you, then you dig in deeper. 
um, and then you would get the detail in the coroner's reports. And obviously, with suicide, the, the range of findings in coroner's reports is, is very wide. Sometimes there's a clear link to an obvious mental health condition. Sometimes people have actually taken the trouble to leave a very detailed record about why they decided to do what they did. And then you can't say the balance of mind was disturbed. They actually made what to them at that time was a very rational decision, or so it appeared. Thank you. Uh, can I just ask one more on the, on the, on the figures? Um, Dr. Ewart said she's gone into uh, death certificates going back to 2006. And it so happens um, that's a date which I recognised from the other suicide audit, which was 96 to 2007. Um, did you uh, have you had any have you have you spent any time comparing the findings in 2006 and se and seven with what the, the previous person was finding? And well, presumably you would have captured more deaths in your under your definition than they would have done. But yes. how many more? Sorry. How many more? I'm not sure that they presented it analysed by year. Okay. It was you know as a a series. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Are you able to explain the difficulties with recording attempted suicide? Yes. Um, that's where we get into the area of self-harm. And self-harm is reckoned to have an incidence about 30 times that of actually completed suicide. So it is very important. And one reason why it's so important is because it potentially offers a window of opportunity to work with that person. So it is important and it is under-recognised. Some people who actually have had an attempt and within self-harm there are those who did what they did with a view to intending it to end in death, but there are also people who did it with much less thought through intention, possibly as what we kind of vernacularly call a cry for help yeah. um, or whatever so it's you know within that number of people there are all sorts of issues and backgrounds so it's not not a single category some people um, will abandon the attempt get over the attempt and not actually present to healthcare services or anything else so that they're they're not recorded at all Others do present, a lot of those would come through the emergency department and we don't have good recording of self-harm at the moment and there are a lot of other things actually that EDs are also like the canary in the coal mine for um, and so we are just about to start a piece of work with our emergency department colleagues to actually look at improving routine recording across all those issues and I think that will be very helpful mm. and I think then not only can we know the numbers but then we can actually start planning pathways to pick people up yeah. and offer them help and access to other services. Okay I'm, I'm going to go back in time now um, in terms of previous strategies and I'm conscious that I'm the only person in here who's be, perhaps been around for the this time. In fact, I raised the subject of suicide in Timwald in 1993, so uh, it is something I'm long concerned about. Anyway, bear with us. Um, 
in 2005, an audit was completed of suicides in 2000 and 2003, and in 2006, a suicide prevention forum was established. You've told us in your written evidence that in September 2006, the group was disbanded. Do you know why this was? Well, I've tried to look at that, uh, Mr Chairman, to find out, um, because obviously the group was, the forum was tasked with drawing up a framework um, to develop good practice and also to examine the statistics. Um, but I could, as far as I can find, it ran for approximately six months. It managed some education and awareness training, um, but then it just seemed to uh, fall away. Um, it was disbanded in September 2006. There was no framework put in place. The implementation plan and suicide prevention toolkits had been partially developed, but they just didn't seem to have been implemented across the board, from what I can see. And I have tried to dig deeper, but I can't seem to find any reason um, as to why it was disbanded in mm. September 2006. And of course, being 13 years on now, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the people involved have moved on to other things. Yeah. In 2008, the department completed a report on suicides up to 2007 and made various recommendations. But in 2015, the minister, Mr Quayle, said, the recommendations of the Isle of Man suicide audit, January 1996 to 2007, were not formally supported. Uh, any ideas why that happened? Again, I have, I have looked at that, and my understanding is that the Mental Health Service said that the recommendations that were made within that audit didn't actually match the evidence that they had. So the Mental Health Service did not actually support the recommendations within that audit. Um, I assume at the time that was backed by the then political members, which is why it didn't progress. I think... Overall, what has been an issue here, firstly, that it has been seen as sitting within mental health and suicide prevention strategy doesn't. It needs to be cross-government and beyond. Mental health has a part to play, but it's only a part. And I think the problem in the past was it was people at the wrong level, kind of quite junior, kind of having a go from within the mental health service. They... I, I think the thing I struggle with is why the Director of Public Health was not the lead for suicide prevention strategy, because everywhere else I have worked, they have been. And in fact, we have now, as Director of Public Health and my directorate, we have agreed that it comes over to us and we will be taking it forward. I think in order to take it forward, though, it is absolutely essential that there is high-level commitment and leadership. Just leaving people who kind of work at a middle level to kind of do their best and come up with a few random ideas of something that could be done, it's not going to go anywhere. If we're going to do this, it's got to be done properly. Yeah. And one of the reasons I haven't sort of moved forward quicker on this is because we have to think very carefully about the governance of how we're going to make sure it is owned and that the right people are accountable for it and take responsibility for it and don't accept when the strategy doesn't progress. Mm -hmm. And I think, I hope I'm not talking out of turn, I'm going to speak very bluntly, there is a big history on this island, and it's not unique to this island, of writing very nice documents that have perfectly reasonable 
objectives in them, but absolutely nothing happens as a result. And I think one of the things we need to do is establish a high-level board, um, political and with political oversight and highest level, chief chief officer level um, from government to actually own these areas. And it's not just suicide, it's substance misuse would be another one, domestic violence. There's a whole long list that we can come up with. And the problem is if we keep generating a group for each one of those topics separately, it's the same people all the time. Mm. And actually we can't resource it like that. Mm. So I think what we need to put in place is at least one and possibly two overarching partnership boards. I think one would probably generally follow um, the arrangements across for health and wellbeing boards and the other one for community safety. And I think suicide prevention is one that actually sits across those two structures. But I think until we have that, I mean, I could write you a lovely strategy right now for suicide prevention, but it won't have teeth and it won't happen because resources have to be committed. It's not enough, for example, just to offer training to a few professionals or professional groups. You've actually got to realign their job descriptions, make sure their managers are holding them to account for actually delivering what they've learnt in their job, monitoring and evaluating to make sure we're seeing a difference. And there's a lot of work involved in that. So until we're you know, aligned with a framework that will enable us to do it meaningfully, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I would suggest we, we go cautiously on it. And, and I think that's a very, very important point to make, yeah. Mr Chairman. It does need to be cross-government. Yeah. Because one of the interesting things when you look through the stats and whatever arguments we can have about how correct the previous stats were, mm-hmm. when you look at the audit, for instance, that was conducted on, on suicide between 2008 and 2014, um, of the 66 they identified, there was 24 who didn't have any contact as far as people could find with the mental health service yeah. whatsoever. And even those that did, when you look at the breakdown, 22 of those were actually at the community mental health level. So it wasn't a huge amount. You know, When people think of people having contact with mental health, they think of the crisis team, they think of people coming forward and saying, you know, I've got serious problems here, I'm going to do myself harm. Only 15 of the 66 actually had contact with the crisis team. So it's important if we're going to catch people and provide prevention and support, then it's got to actually be across government and across agencies, not just this focus that sometimes can be drawn to mental health. As a team and I think what's just been said by both of you is very positive. Any idea of timescale? Well, well, actually, some some of the changes are starting to filter through now. Um, from what I can see, as minister, um, obviously, in terms of setting up a board and yeah. everything else, we need to make sure that's done properly. Um, so I don't have an exact timescale for that at the moment. But one of the things that has been being trialled by the mental health service is the e clinics, um, which are now up and running with QWell, so people can get in touch confidentially and seek support that way because one of the other things which I find quite interesting has been drawn out of all the audits is men are it's more likely for men to be in a situation where they end up committing suicide but they're also the group least likely to seek help and I think that's something that's got to be overcome but um, as males we don't tend to talk about our emotions we don't tend to talk about problems we let things build up and so having just even got these clinics in place where they can privately talk to someone who's not potentially on Ireland 
doesn't necessarily know who they are mm. and there's not that worry or risk that people are going to find out about whatever they're discussing. I think that's a step forward. Mm. But in terms of driving it across government, it's something certainly as minister I'm keen to do. And I, I'd want to emphasise what Henrietta said, where she said she might have thought she was talking out of turn. She most certainly isn't. Mm. Government over the years has been very good at writing yeah. lots of pretty documents that then go nowhere yeah. and it's been as I think both my colleagues here know it's one of my pet hates yeah. as well and that's something we've got to make sure that we actually deliver deliver on yeah. and make sure we have a strategy going forward and I think one of the things we've we've got to bottom out is GDPR because certain departments hide behind GDPR when they could be acting in the interests of the person that's having well, advice. If, if I can just come in on that, yeah. because nobody should be hiding behind GDPR because it, it's a nonsense to say that oh because of GDPR information can't be shared. I've had this clarified previously. If you are if you are in a position where the sharing of that information benefits the individual and it is to stop the individual coming to harm. There is nothing to stop agencies sharing that information. As far as I'm aware, that's being communicated across DHSC, across all of our teams. So I would look very dimly on anything that came forward that suggested information was not being shared because people were trying to put up this false barrier of GDPR. I, I, can I just say I'd agree that uh, there have been reports over the years which uh, don't seem to be enacted upon and it's very sad in some situations what arises out of that however there also have been expressions of good intent made and I do hope that you are able to complete the work. That was the chair of the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee and his colleagues speaking to Health Minister David Ashford and Director of Public Health Dr Henrietta Hewitt. We'll rejoin that conversation shortly but first time for the news. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Faster Mike, welcome back to this week's episode of Perspective on Manx Radio. If you're just joining us, we're taking a look back at a crucial oral evidence session which took place on Monday. The Social Affairs Policy Review Committee heard from the Health Minister David Ashford and Director of Public Health Dr Henrietta Hewitt. Tomorrow, the panel will hear from the Interim Chief Executive Officer of the Department of Health and Social Care, Angela Murray, from 3.30. But let's rejoin Monday's sitting with the committee's chair, David Cretney, MLC. Can I just say I'd agree that uh, there have been reports over the years which uh, don't seem to be enacted upon. And it's very sad in some situations what arises out of that. However, there also have been expressions of good intent made and I do hope that you are able to complete the work. In 2017 a suicide prevention stakeholder group produced a draft needs assessment report. What's the status of that document? Yes, in relation to the needs assessment um, the, the final sign-off and implementation was um, put in place in September 2018. There were a couple of changes um, that needed to be looked at. Um, the one-year post-implementation review was also completed and signed off in November 2018, um, and two further actions have been completed as part of that implementation. Those two further actions for the committee's uh, information is a new needs assessment form, which is evidence-based, was drawn up, because I believe the previous one wasn't very evidence-based and also there's advanced suicide prevention training currently being provided to staff. Uh, most up-to-date figure I have is that so far across DHSC there have been 304 
individuals that have now been trained to be mental health first aiders. So it's been taken up very, very well. Longer term, my personal ambition is to have that rolled out to other government departments as well. Um, But I've also got to be a realist in terms of the current budgetary constraints. And we'll look to see once we've got the staff trained up within DHSC, how we can actually um, move that forward. And of course, you'll also be aware from previous evidence you've had about the general well-being policies now across government um, from previous evidence session and how that's expanding across departments. And I think this is something we also need to work with private employers about because employers do have a, an opportunity to, to look after their employees' mental health generally and obviously suicide awareness prevention yeah. is part of that. And in particular the high-stress jobs, nursing and uh, the police and what have you. Yeah, yeah. The medical profession yeah. has one of the highest suicide rates. Mm. And that's why it's been important that with this we've focused primarily on DHSC staff. Yep and also ensuring there's people in the workplace, colleagues, who can help and assist with well-being. Mm-hmm. Are you targeting specific groups with your, um, what, along your thinking, you know, the high-risk groups? I think, in, well, I think it's for everyone, to be perfectly yeah. honest. It's not just the high-risk groups. I, I think the problem with these sort of things is if you focus too much on the high-risk groups, you then start isolating out others. and. Mm. I mean, maybe maybe it's yeah, maybe it's a very high level, but in my view, in relation to suicide, is one death is too many. Mm-hmm. And I think once you start breaking it down, it's fine for collating data, but when you're trying to offer support to people on the ground, if you're saying, well, you're a male between 45 and 55, so we're going to focus on you more primarily, you are missing potentially the female who's in the 30 brackets, who's requiring more, if not you know, equal, if not more support. Mm. And I, I personally would say it's got to be dealt with on an individual basis and individual needs. And that's one of the things why I'm very keen within mental health, that you know the triage and they do in relation to people coming to see them is very, very important. In the, in the past, I remember uh, a previous report or something saying that... Um, uh, males of a certain age, middle-aged, in rural communities, were more at risk. Um, and, and back to what you just said about males not being prepared to talk sometimes, I think younger males are certainly much better than those of my age, which has got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Yeah. In, in April 2019, Dr. Hewitt sent us a copy of a paper entitled Suicide Prevention Overview Paper, dated January 2019. She told us the paper had recently been presented to the department, minister and members. So what's the status of that document? Right, well, that comes back to what I was saying about us actually taking on the strategic lead for suicide prevention within public health. And that was the document that we presented as you know the basis for the discussion of that um, to get it all agreed as I was saying before we haven't taken it forward yet and I am hesitant to start doing so until we've got the governance framework to really give it some teeth and get some traction because just producing another you yes. know, nice document isn't going to help us. And is that based on the 2017 report or is a separate? No, and I, I have to say that actually there are methodological issues with all those reports. And one of the reasons for that is because public health had no involvement in them. And public health does actually have 
that skill set for looking at the epidemiology and for looking at the evidence and for, you know, all the rest of it, which is why I was really very surprised to find that public health was not really involved with it at all in any of its earlier history. Now, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, NICE, published comprehensive state-of-the-art evidence-based guidance in October last year for the prevention of suicide in community and also in custodial settings and that gives very clear actions that need to be taken um, and that is going to be further strengthened by publication which is expected on the 10th of this month of quality standards which actually is the tool that enables you to say here on the Isle of Man are we meeting this quality standard for this element of suicide prevention yes or no and that very easily leads into an action plan to close those gaps so actually the time is really ripe for us to get a grip on this and do it properly um, so as I say those quality standards are going to be published later this month and I hope we are soon going to make progress in terms of establishing the appropriate sort of board governance framework for taking the ownership of this and, and again just very quick Mr Chair from a, from a high level political point of view again this is crucial it's about joined up government mm. or lack thereof yeah. Yeah. this has been the problem I think going back a long time you've got individual agencies collating individual statistics there needs to be one central body who mm. collates the statistics and drives the policy and that should be public health yeah. and that's one of the reasons against Jonathan Michael review recommendation was to move public health out of the department yeah. and into cabinet office to give it that all world view. Oh, sorry, Mr. Cretney. I, th yeah. I think the Minister also said there was a whole lot of action already going on under the 2017 proposal with which Dr. Ewart says there are methodological problems. No, no, no. no. Under, the, under the 2017 proposal, um, what's, what's come out of that is in relation to the training. Well, from my point of view, the training should be happening anyway. We, regardless of what the 2017 review had actually said, we should be training up our staff as mental health first aiders. There should be people on the ground. Um, the new needs assessment form, which is something internal to the department anyway, um, so what's come out of the 2017, it's not suddenly driving stuff down a particular pathway that we wouldn't have gone down anyway. And also, obviously, the e-clinics, which I'm a great supporter mm -hmm. of, um, that is an initiative that should have happened even without yeah. that particular assessment. So none of the stuff that's going on plays against what yeah. Marietta has said. If anything, it actually complements it. Yeah. Until, until we get to the um, what's been stated today, which I think is certainly good progress, are there any particular initiatives being aimed at reducing the suicide risk in groups with statistically high suicide risks? Young people, middle-aged men, prisoners and former prisoners, people with depression, alcohol and drug users, veterans and survivors of abuse. Is there any particular initiative being aimed? I think within all of those, um, it comes back to the point really that the Minister made that some of them are actually quite global groups if we talk about males and you know we've got young males, we've got middle aged males, yeah. we then get another group that are yeah. older males. Um, in terms of actually how do you target a risk group, that is one that actually needs universal and it's about really getting as far upstream as possible around just opening up 
the ability to talk about emotions and feelings. Um, a lot of people who would benefit from that are not people who would ever have gone on to attempt or complete a suicide. So those sorts of initiatives will actually have huge impact on overall emotional and mental health and well-being. Um, and hopefully the reduction in suicides or attempted suicide will also be a feature of that. Mm. For some of the other groups, people who have an alcohol misuse problem, a substance misuse problem, um, depression, um, they are going to be often in touch with services already. So there's something there, and it comes back to what the Minister's been saying about making sure that the staff in those services, because those are DHSC services, um, are trained around the suicide prevention, how to actually spot the signs in somebody that you're seeing for their alcohol misuse, that they may actually be at risk of suicide, um, ditto somebody with a depression. Mm. And certainly there has been some fears in health professionals that actually you mustn't, mustn't mention suicide because that could put the idea in the person's head and create the thing you don't want to create. But we now know that all the evidence is that that is not the case. And there are some what you might call simple standard questions that use forms of words that you know, health professionals can be confident are appropriate to use just to open up that that area as something to talk about with the person. Mm. So that that's within the initiatives that the minister was talking about as going ahead already. Yeah. And I hate to bang on and go out again, but again with the e clinics, it gives that more private forum mm. because again with men not likely to speak about it, rural communities, which you mentioned before, Mr. Chairman, even in the UK, they tend to be close knit communities. Yeah. And the problem is there is this yeah. fear, this perceived yeah. fear that if I go off and speak to someone, yeah. they know me or they know my friends, they know my family, that information is going to get shared. It's mm. not, but the, is mm. that perceived worry there on top of everything else? Mm. So having that private forum for people to be able to go and seek help is absolutely yes. essential for that group. That's good. So what sort of timescale are we looking at then? Um, and when the mental health um, first aid is going to be rolled out across the department, and rest of government, hopefully. Well, it's already been rolled out across DHSC, as I say, of 304 already taking place. Um, I'm a very impatient uh, person, as you know, Mr Perkins. I would I would quite happily do it tomorrow. People then have to rein me in. Um, as I said, we've got to be realistic because the five uh, mental health first aid trainers are all DHSC staff. They have day jobs as well. Um, so I'm going to have to look for some form of budget in order to actually be able to drive that forward. So that's why I can't put a time scale on it at the moment. But from my point of view, it's important internally within the department, we've got that training up and running, but then it is something. So 304 is, is what proportion of the department? So 304 workforce? off the top of my head would be roughly about 9% of the department, I think we're about 3,500 staff across the entire department. So it'd be about quick maths on my head, about 8 9%. And the, and, it's no, still, and the training is still ongoing. But there's no time scale for it to be... Well, as I say, we've got five trainers internally who are delivering the training. Um, they have day jobs as well. We're doing it with key... What we're trying to do is we're trying to get various staff around the different areas of the department so there's at least someone in each area that has had the training. Why, why, why does it still take so long to access psychological interventions such as CBT and counselling? The simple fact is it's sheer numbers um, coming through the service. 
you'll be aware, Mr Chairman, I think, in fact, I think you alluded to it in a previous evidence session, I think it was Mr Henderson's evidence session, there has been an increase in budget for mental health. Um, so mental health budget did see an increase this year, but the numbers that are trying to go through are still increasing. One of the reasons as well, and certainly in relation to children's mental health, and I think I've stated this in Timwald, it's important we get the autism pathway up and running because currently those um, with autism are being referred into CAMS and they should really be separate out and have a separate service and that will then alleviate pressure to be able to deal with the more difficult cases in children's mental health. Um, but the, the plain and simple answer is it is sheer numbers going through. And I think that that's one where there needs to be a lot of pathway work and I think this will get picked up within the transformation because, again, it's that thing of getting upstream and doing simple things quickly which stop the problem becoming chronic and growing and then requiring referral to specialist services. Um, and there's you know increasing evidence about how to do that because ultimately what we want to aim for is population that is emotionally and mentally resilient yeah. to all the stuff that life yeah. throws at all of us um, and clearly the answer to that is not to refer people into specialist services mm. um, and, and I think following on from that another it leads very nice into another one of my pet topics which is integrated care and getting more out into the community as well as I keep talking about the hospital being very acute focused while all the services in the past have always been very clinical focused and mental health certainly falls into that bracket. I think there has been changes since we created the community division that has brought services together rather than operating in silos um, and Angela Murray who uh, you'll be giving, hearing evidence from next week, um, great credit to her for pulling yeah. that all together. But I think with integrated care, there should be more community services available to people where they live. So they're not being pulled into a clinical environment. They can actually have support in their community. And that is absolutely crucial. Okay. And I think the evidence we've had over the years on uh, mental health, the, the quicker you can get an intervention, mm. the lower down the scale of the problem, um, it stops it escalating. And I think that's vitally important. And that's the problem with the clinical uh, referral because you get referred it up the chain. You've then got to be assessed um, as to where you are in the priority of being seen. And that's before you even go into the system for, for an actual appointment. And, you know, so I would say personally at the moment it is rather cumbersome and it has been for a very long time. And that's one of the things that we need to break down with the integrated care model that we're looking to roll out across the island. So when somebody first presents themselves, what uh, do you do suicide risk assessments for your frontline staff? My, my understanding is um, if they present themselves, and I mean, by present, Mr Pimms, can I just clarify what you mean by present? Because there's various different ways they might present. So if you gave me an example. Well, I suppose through the mental health route. So say they presented through the crisis team. Yeah. Um, let's take that as an example. My understanding of the way it works is what happens is the crisis team would be called in to speak to the individual. The individual would then be triaged, so they would actually do an assessment to decide, are they a risk to themselves, are they a risk to others, um, what, is, what is the actual issue, um, and then from that assessment that would decide then the priority of how quickly the person is seen. Mm -hmm. And what about the mental health people that are um, going with the police to a, a distressed person? Uh, is that working well? 
Um, I've spoken to the chief constable about it um, to see how it was going, and he is—he's actually—I was going to use the phrase overjoyed, but I think maybe yeah. that's—but he, he's greatly—he's uh, greatly enthused by what's actually happening on the ground. I think it's made a big difference, and I think I've said during one of our general evidence sessions, the first general evidence session I gave as minister. Um, you know, it, it was completely, you know, we shouldn't be putting police officers through having to become mental health workers and make assessments of people on the ground. Um, having that support there has actually massively assisted the police, um, both enabled the speed they can deal with people and getting the person to the right point, uh, the right point to help them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm keen to look to see how we can expand that and build on it. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio as we turn our ears to the latest evidence session of the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee on the topic of suicide. The final instalment is coming up shortly. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Welcome back to this week's episode of Perspective. Time now for the last section of Monday's oral evidence session as the committee's chair, David Cretney, MLC, continues to quiz the Health Minister and Director of Public Health. Just go back to Dr Ewart for a moment, uh, where you spoke about resilience. and uh, is, there, is there any evidence or is there any work being done, not only here but elsewhere, as to whether society is less resilient than once it was and is there anything i think that's very very difficult to actually you know quantify in any way and i think you know sometimes you know there's the the kind of thing between the stiff upper lip of days gone by and the snowflakes of today now i don't think that the stiff upper lip was necessarily (laughs) a particularly good thing um and clearly being too much of a snowflake isn't particularly good either but i think you know that there is increasing evidence about trying to build resilience you know from birth up really and a lot of that is about building resilience in individuals but also resilience in communities so that there is more going on within a community that can support people and instead of the old model the very medical model of we do things to and for people it's actually enabling people and communities to do things for themselves so if there's anywhere that should have a positive opportunity to capitalise on resilient communities, then the Isle of Man should be a perfect model, really, shouldn't it? Yeah. Um, what, what screening procedures are in place relating to depression? Has the department considered adopting a, a zero suicide approach where all primary care patients would be screened for depression? Uh, there is no evidence to support that. Um, there are questions which have been validated for use when a health professional is with somebody who they think may be depressed but you wouldn't use them for everybody you know if i went in with sore throat i wouldn't expect to be asked the questions the two questions are very simple it's in the last two weeks have you found that you're not getting any pleasure from anything that you're doing and actually i can't even remember what the other one is but mm-hmm. <laughs> i could quickly look it up for you if you're interested because mm-hmm. it's in the nice guidance do you, do you want me to do that yes. just just while Henry yes. just doing that from my person from my personal point of view and obviously layman's point of view um I mean, there's grades of depression as well. I've got friends who suffer quite yeah. badly from depression, and certainly in one particular case, 
you know that question wouldn't necessarily capture them because they go through phases where they might have two or three days being deeply deeply depressed yeah and then on day three and four they're as bright as anyone and you wouldn't know anything was wrong yeah and and i think that that's the difficulty with depression is it can come and go um so while while it might be easy to identify those who are in a stable long-term bout of depression you're not necessarily going to pick up the others yeah. and also to be honest to be frank again people aren't necessarily always honest and open no. about depression or they don't even recognize the signs of it themselves it's just for them it's just the norm the guidance for case identification from nice is be alert to possible depression particularly in people with a past history of depression or a chronic physical health problem with associated functional impairment and consider asking people who may have depression two questions specifically during the last month have you often been bothered by feeling down depressed or hopeless and then the other one is during the last month have you often been bothered by having little interest or pleasure in doing things and if you get a positive answer to those then you should move on to doing what's known as a full mental state right. examination and if you're a health professional who doesn't know how to do that full examination you would suggest the person see somebody who who is i think i read somewhere in, in, in some of the papers we received where persons who have attempted to take their own life then uh, submit, do a questionnaire or something afterwards and say, uh, no, it wasn't something I did deliberately. Is it not likely that people are likely to give that answer? Yeah. Mm. From my point of view, yes. Mm. I, I, you know, the, you know, the likelihood of anyone being completely and utterly honest yes. in mm. relation to such a questionnaire I mean, I, I personally um, would question the validity of any stats that came off that. Because yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm not convinced that it, you know, it, it would give a true picture. No, and certainly that the evidence-based guidance for, from Nice doesn't recommend using such a questionnaire as part of standard. Right, you know, good. Post-incident work. And also post-incident, there's nothing to say that person still won't be absolutely suffer from depression. Well, that was my concern. And, feel, and you could actually push them. Yeah. All the way back again. The, the, uh, the, the extract that Dr. Ewart just read out, you said it was from NICE guidelines. And I'm sorry, can you remind me, is it the NICE guidelines? What, what's the theme of the overall guidelines? Because you were talking about depression, but yeah, you've also told us there's, there's that more. That particular guideline is the guideline called Depression in Adults Recognition and Management. But you've also told us there's a lot more to suicide prevention yeah. than looking out for depression. So is there a, a policy, or is there going to be a policy, where people working in all services are supposed to be vigilant for something? You, you know, we've talked about that, how do people present, but is, is there an, an issue about spotting people who, who haven't presented? This ties in with the mental health first aiders <laughs> that I was talking about before, that we're currently only doing within DHSC, but longer term, like I want to roll out further. Um, but it ties in with that. It's about training people up to spot the signs and get early intervention. So if they've, you know, again, you know, evidence shows that sometimes people feel in a workplace, they can't go up to someone if they're worried about them because they feel, one, they're either going to make matters worse 
or two that person's just Absolutely. going to tell them to find the nearest door Absolutely. unpolitely mm. um, and there's always that fear and this is what the this mental health first train uh, first aid training is all about is getting people in place over those barriers who don't mind walking up and saying you know fred frank you know you okay and asking the question and mm. just picking up those early signs mm. you know some people who will shut off completely unfortunately it may not help but even if it helps one or two people yes. and get so the first, first aid can be proactive it's not only reactive yeah, yeah, first oh, aid. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. and in fact uh, the minister's been talking about the mental health first aid which is a recognised programme so that, that's a thing and it's an extremely valuable thing so that, that is you know, it's great that that's going ahead there is actually another one a, another programme which is very specifically around suicide intervention and that's called ASSIST and that stands for Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training and that's a two day course which can be delivered to anyone you want to deliver it to. It could be done by employers um, for people in the workplace, could be done, you know, and in fact, I think I think it is being used alongside within DHSC. I can give an example of where I've used it in the past, um, and this was when I was working in Peterborough, and we had a very particular problem in Peterborough with multi-storey car parks and people literally catching buses into Peterborough to jump off them and obviously one of the things you do there is try to reduce access so you use barriers you have bright lighting you have positive upbeat music but one of the other things we did was actually get the parking attendants through the assist training so that they could see if somebody was kind of you know hanging around the stairwell or you know whatever and then knew how to go and open a simple conversation with them so I think you know there are a number of interventions that can be put in place I think one of the things we have to be careful with with training is you can risk kind of scattergunning with it so mm. like everybody's going to get mental health first aid training everybody's going to get assist training you know we, we've sorted the issue but one of the things is we touched on it before that people have to be supported to actually use that training because it's perfectly possible to go off on a lovely two-day training course or whatever it is have a jolly good time and then actually never use what you learn ever um, and so that's that's not what we want so there is definitely something about how we monitor and evaluate what happens as a result of putting these initiatives in place we've heard a lot about people that have taken their own life. The real victims in all this, of course, are the loved ones and the families that are left behind. What is the department doing to support them? Again, we have to look at the evidence um, to support what we should do. And again, that is very well covered in the NICE evidence-based guidance. They do need support, and that can be in a number of ways. Uh, Public Health England actually has written guidance that people can be given for some people that might be all they need there are also obviously a lot of peer-to-peer -peer bereavement services things like crews which are very very valuable there has been a bit of a vogue in some places for what is called postvention programs but
but um, the evidence base to support them simply is not there. And in fact, some of the evaluations of those programs have shown they were actually harmful. So I think we have to be very careful not to buy into some of the advocates for some of these things. And I'm sure the advocates are coming from a place of very good motivation. But with all of these things, rather than fall into the trap of, you know, this is a dreadful thing, we must do something, let's do this. We, we always need to stand back and, and look at the evidence. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly difficult on the island as well, isn't it, with a close community? Yeah. And I think, again, just, just to add to that, I think, again, it comes down to the individual support needed. We can't really box all families in the same and say, right, this is, this yeah. is the pathway you will follow with. Yeah. Families are affected and individuals are affected in different ways. Mm. And so for me, it's ensuring that there's tailored support there to help the individuals, but the help they want, mm. because help that they don't want is not just could be potentially seen as interference, it mm. can actually do detrimental damage. Mm. And it's important we avoid that as well. The last of my uh, prepared questions is about the connection between the judicial process and the department. What processes are in place to ensure the implementation of recommendations made by the coroner of inquest? So I'll take that one, Mr Chairman. In relation to the coroner's inquest, um, as the committee will be aware, um, under Rule 34 of the Coroner's Act, the coroner, if he has any recommendations, will write to me as minister. Um, in relation to suicide, which is the topic we're talking about today, what would happen is, although it's a similar process throughout the department, it would be referred into the community division. What will then happen is within 20 days, they will draw up a plan as to how they're going to respond and what they're going to do about the action points. Mm. I will then formally write back to the coroner, listing out what we are going to do in light of the recommendations. And we do then follow that up and, and write back to the coroner in the future, saying what we've actually done in relation to that. Right. And the department does keep a log of it all as well. I think it was released as part of a Timwood question not long ago. I can't remember who asked me the question, right. but it was, we actually went back and provided the stats in relation to what the department's done in relation to coroner's recommendations. Okay. Have you any views on how the media should report the coroner's uh, uh, result? Yes, there, there are again very good guidelines around this. This is something that's touched on by, by NICE and also the Samaritans have done an awful lot of work in that area and have a publication of guidelines for good practice for media reporting. I'm not aware that that has been formally done here and I think when we move on with the strategy and particularly because it'll come through in one of the NICE assessments when we benchmark against the quality standards, we will be testing that. But certainly the reporting that I have seen when cases have happened actually seems to be within those guidelines already. So it's not a you know it's not waving a red flag, shall right. we say. Thank you. I can say that wasn't always the case and I got myself into big trouble with the press a long time ago because they felt that I was interfering with the, what was a public uh, process and of course the coroner's inquest is a public process but the extent to which they were reporting to me felt to be more than was necessary. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that's all I have. Eh? Just one quick one yeah. if I may, it's not actually related to what we're looking at today but you mentioned epidemiology, I'm a great one for that. Um, are you looking at other areas within the island because I think that is so important for the long-term health benefits? Absolutely um, and as I say it, it's really something that was 
for whatever reasons, completely just not happening. So what we now have um, in place is the beginnings of a public health outcomes framework, which is very much modelled on the Public Health England one. When we were deciding where to go with this when I came into post, we actually looked at what was being done across the four nations of the UK, plus Ireland, plus further afield. And actually the Public Health England is by far the most developed. Nobody else has one that is publicly available in the way that that one is, or that enables you not only to look at the England figures, but you can actually compare yourself to different areas, which is also quite useful. So we are developing that. We have now published two editions. The first one we did in 2017, the second one was published in June. We cannot yet replicate all the data items that are in the Public Health England data set. A lot of those data items don't come from health. They come from education, they come from housing, they come from employment and social security. And we have a big job, I think, to actually look at why those branches of government are not routinely publishing data items um, and to see whether we can get agreement. And again, this comes back to having the national governance framework for all of this to actually say, you know, you are too. You publish that. Um, at least I, I would like us to, to look at that. And at least if people take the view that we're not going to publish those data items, they need to say that they've considered the question and why they're not. Yeah. I think in my mind, we should call them out and hold them to account for that. So the public health outcomes framework is really, you know, as I was saying with the suicide statistic, it's kind of our top level diagnostic. And benchmarking against England or regions within England enables us to say, actually, we've got a red flag waving here. We're worse on this indicator than England, and we're worse than the Northwest. And if we're worse than the Northwest, that really is a problem because the Northwest has a lot of post industrial, very, very deprived conditions. So, anything where that's a feature, we then need to do the much deeper dive. And we need to start doing that by really having a rolling program of what are called across joint strategic needs assessments, which brings together the epidemiology, you know, the patterns of who's affected by this issue and how and where and why, and also the evidence for what is known to be effective. Um, because it's one thing knowing about the needs, but you also need to know, you know, what evidence-based interventions you need to be thinking about to address them and try and reduce the, the indicator. Okay. Yes. So just on the on the governance point, I think Sir Jonathan Michael recommended, and Tim would agree, that the public health directorate should move to the cabinet office. The minister mentioned this earlier today. Is that a move which will need a Tinwald vote? Not my understanding. And second question: Is there going to be a, a date by which or on which that's going to happen? Is that known yet? It will be. It will be done as part of the transformation. Um, <coughs> so we're currently in the process. Um, we have appointed the director of transformation, if I say it right, the director of transformation to lead the project, and then as part of that, it will be done alongside um, the other transformations. But as far as I'm concerned, it should be as soon as possible, really. Yeah. Um, but you know, but the work that public health is doing, it's not the move isn't going to affect that. Henrietta um, has done a great job since she took over as director in pulling things together. And that work will be ongoing regardless of where it sits. But from my point of view, to give it that all-world approach 
it should sit in the cabinet office. Mm. Uh, my understanding is which functions rest with which department is at the ultimately uh, the responsibility of council and ministers. But if anyone can show me otherwise, then uh, I'll be happy to look at it. Just coming back to social media and online harm, I, I spotted that in the UK there is a joint consultation between, I think, the Department of Health and the Home Office about online harm. Is that something which people are following here and would have a, I mean, I don't know what sort of recommendations would come out of, of that, but... Yes, I, I think you know, as a general rule, we try to keep a finger on the pulse of everything that's going on across, not least because they have the capacity and resource to do the big pieces of work, which we just can't here. So we would take the starting point of whatever is found that is evidence-based from elsewhere, we would expect to apply here. Obviously, you need to test that to make sure there aren't issues that would make our context take us down a different route mm. but certainly in respect of that you know we will definitely be be watching for, for what comes out of that and thinking about how we need to take that forward here so anything you'd like to say that you don't think you've covered already i i, I mean personally i would just like to thank the committee for looking into this mm. because um pulling it to the public's attention mm. because suicide prevention is absolutely essential. Mm. Um, we've come a long way in mental health services compared to where it's been even in the last few years, thanks to interventions from public health. Yeah, and, and, and from within the mental yeah, health service. And also, to, you know, the management we've currently got there, it's an absolutely crucial area to be looking at. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but we can get there, I think. And Dr. Ewart, anything? No, no. no. I mean, other than to say that with health and well-being generally, the Department of Health and Social Care actually has only a minority effect. Um, it really yeah. is the wider determinants of health yeah. um, that are so important. You know, we've seen that as we've been talking about suicide, but it applies to most other health outcomes as well. Okay, so. From our point of view, I think it seems timely that the work that you're undertaking and what and our review of this subject, so hopefully we can make some significant progress rather than just reports on a shelf. So thank you very much for coming along and being so open and helpful today. We heard there from Health Minister David Ashford and Director of Public Health Dr Henrietta Hewitt speaking to the Social Affairs Policy Review Committee on Monday. And as we've mentioned, the committee will recommence its inquiry tomorrow when it hears from Mrs Angela Murray, who's now the Interim Chief Executive Officer of the Department of Health and Social Care from half past three. That's being held in the Legislative Council Chamber and members of the public are welcome to attend. Thanks for listening. Take care.